Hope y'all are doing well. We are in the book of 1 Peter. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Peter. If you don't have one, just look underneath you. Uh, one of these blue and white Bibles. Just open it up and you can keep that Bible. It's all yours. Take it home. Uh, or if you have one at home, then take it home and give it to someone that needs one. We give those away. So please take it. We are in 1 Peter. Uh, this study is called Everyday Church. And so the idea is, as Peter is writing to those that had been at one point connected into a group and uh, they were experiencing, because everybody was new Christians 2,000 years ago. Uh, They were all experiencing community and then persecution came and they were dispersed everywhere. And as they were dispersed everywhere, they weren't able to be in community anymore and figure out how to be Christians anymore. And so he writes this letter addressing a few things. One, why persecution happens, encouraging them in the faith, but also these are some things you need to know about what it means to be a Christian. Your group's gone, and you're having to live in, in smaller groups. And so here's some writing on what it means to be a Christian. Here's, here's what Christian living looks like. And so that's why the, the, name of this sermon, or the name of this sermon series is Everyday Church. It's, we want to be the church not just on Sundays, but we want to live every day with gospel intentionality. So what does that look like? What does that, how does that feel? <clears throat> and as we're going through First Peter right now, Last week and this week, Peter is addressing the, the idea of holiness. What does it mean to be holy as God is holy? So uh, we are going to be in chapter 2, <clears throat> starting at verse 1, and we'll go through verse 12. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll look at uh, what, what Peter's doing. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have. I pray for everyone here right now, as, as we look at your word, that they would have a desire to put themselves under the authority of it, including me, that every one of us would see and understand that these are not just words, but your words, and they have amazing authority, and that as we see what your text says, that we would deeply desire to put ourselves under what it says and want to live it out, want to see this happen in our life. We know that that can't happen without the Spirit. We know that that's a gift. I I know that I can't do anything regarding preaching without your Spirit coming and empowering me. So I'm absolutely, completely dependent upon you. Come now, God. Speak through me and cause all of our hearts to have a deep desire to want to obey what we see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1 Peter, starting at chapter 2, uh, let me read the entire text and then we'll, you'll be able to see what, what's going on and, and how he's calling us towards holiness and, and what manner he's calling us to holiness. Because it's, it's not, the I don't think, the typical way that we would kind of, in today's idea about being called to holiness, like, just be holy and try. It's, it's not that at all. So let's, let's look at verse 1 uh, through 12. And, and you'll see that, that those commands on, on the outset in verse 1 and in verse 11 through 12, but, but the inner part, 2 through 10, it's not filled with command. So let, let's see how he's calling and reminding us to live out holy lives. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Let's all sing it. I'm just kidding. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, you may see your, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I think that this text is about holiness and the way that it's about holiness. Peter's giving us three different thoughts on how we should pursue holiness. So let me, let me, see, let me show you why I think it's about holiness uh, because it's bookended, as I've just already pointed out before we read, with holiness, behavioral holiness language. If you see right there in verse one, he's, he's, these are commands, so we don't want to minimize them and say that they're suggestions. They're, they're definitely commands. And he tells you to put away all malice. All deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So these, these are commands of God to us regarding behavior, the way that we act. And he's saying all those things in your life, because those things come naturally. We who are fallen have things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander happen in our lives. We don't have to strive for it. It happens to us. Don't do those things. I command you to stop. And then on the other end, at verse 11 and 12, There's also commands towards behavioral language. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of your flesh. Those those sinful things that tempt you, don't do them. And then he says, and keep your conduct. This is, I mean, it's a straight behavioral language among the Gentiles. Just substitute non-believers there around people who, because we're Gentiles and we're hopefully believers. So keep your behavior around non-believers honorable. In a way that honors Christ, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they see your good deeds, and the goal would be that they would glorify God on the day of visitation, that they would come to know Christ. So, bookended within what I'm going to argue is Peter's argument for the way to pursue holiness, bookended is commands on both sides. These are the things you need to do. Put away these things, put away these things. So, in theological language, we call that an inclusio. That's just fun to say. You don't need to know that. But an inclusio here of holiness talk. And then in the middle, he tells us the way that we pursue holiness. Now, you can see the title. I have Peter's thoughts towards pursuing holiness. Peter's thoughts towards pursuing holiness. And I'm, I'm very intentionally not using words like Peter's recipe, Peter's formula, Peter's method, Peter's steps, Peter's techniques, Peter's procedure, because... When we hear those things, we think, okay, just do number one, just do number two, just number three, boom, got it. 
All done with the three steps. Holiness complete. What's next? And, and I don't want you to think that way. These are Peter's thoughts towards holiness. And so they're not formulas or steps or processes or techniques or recipes because all three of them, there's no completing. You're, we are going to do these three things for the rest of our lives. Now, that doesn't make you, hopefully, it doesn't make you say, well, then forget it. <laughs> that's, just, that's forever. Come on, Fudd. It's, it's not... It's not meant to, to be um, shaped and framed that way so that it's, it's defeating and I don't want to do it. But instead, I think that they're there for us to help us see that we have to constantly remind ourselves that we can't do it on our own. We have to constantly press into Christ. We have to constantly tell ourselves, all I need is Christ here. But th- these are Peter's thoughts towards holiness. And this isn't um, steps. And if it were steps, if it were techniques then it's all just brain and, and willpower. It's, it's just my, main, my brain can comprehend it and then I can willpower myself through it. And, and that's really not how holiness is achieved. And that's really not what God wants us to do in regard to holiness. He wants our heart to want to do these things. So like last week, if you were here last week, in, in one particular section we talked about pursuit of holiness and I, I said seven day challenge for everybody. Write down right now a list of things that cause you to really love Christ. What are the things? Coffee in the morning, good coffee in the morning, early mornings, journaling, reading my Bible, worship, whatever. I mean, you have yours, I have mine. What are those things that, when I do those things over a long period of time, my love for Jesus is stirred? What's the list of things that, that if I do these things for a long time, my love for Jesus is diminished? Bad coffee, Netflix, whatever. What's, if I do this over a long period of time and I look at it and I'm honest and I said seven day challenge, those things just for these seven days, do those things and those things fast from them. Don't do them at all. Let those things go completely and over the seven days, see what happens. Let's see what happens. Likely, some of you did it. Some of you were reminded in a community group halfway through the week and you got through it and so you're feeling pretty good. You just did it for seven days. We've hit at 12, I said it, we started at 12, so we're almost there, 25 minutes in. You can, don't Netflix binge right like during the sermon, but you can go watch Making a Murder when you finally get home. But um, <laughs> what I want you to do is think about this, all right? That seven-day challenge. Some of you had the heart to want to do it and carried it all the way through. And you're like, okay, I see what you're saying, Fud. The heart for holiness came out of what I wanted, and so I did it. Now, be careful and don't feel too prideful. Like, yeah, I did it. I'm pursuing, I, I'm holier than these people on my road. It's like, the, all of a sudden you're not anymore, right? Because you're feeling prideful about the holiness. So, but at the same time, that's one, but the other side is some people like, yeah, I want to do it. And by Monday afternoon, you completely forgot. And me mentioning it right now, you're thinking to yourself, oh, I failed for six days. I totally forgot. Bang my head. What's wrong with me? I don't want you to go in that lane either because God's not right now saying, I'm so disappointed. One day in, and you let me down. That's not what I'm saying. So what I'm saying, even regarding the seven day challenge, your heart is what God wants. And if you do it, and all of a sudden you're prideful, that's not the heart. Or if you failed, God's just saying, and I think he's saying through the text, right now then, right now. And if you fail again, do it again right then. So it's not about steps, because if you achieve them, and it's just steps, if you do achieve them, then it's all just self-willed, and I don't think that that's holiness. So here, as we're looking at holiness, the reason why I'm not using language like P3 
Peter's three steps or Peter's recipe towards holiness, it's because I don't want you to think you're ever going to arrive. And I want you to do it because you have a heart that longs for holiness. And yes, it's the whole life. It's my entire life. But that's fine with me. That's, I wouldn't have it any other way. That's how I want to be holy is give my whole life over. Failings all the time, but I get mercy from the Lord and I'm gonna pursue holiness. Now, one other thing I want you to see is the reason why I think we will have a heart to do this. Peter uses it right in in the text. Let let me show you one other place. I I referenced it at the very beginning. Chapter one, verse one. Notice what Peter calls them. Peter, an apostle from Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles. So he calls them exiles. He does it again in verse 12, or I'm sorry, 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So in that language, as he's writing to them about holiness, he's wanting them to remember, you're an exile. You're a sojourner. You're walking through land that's not your home. This isn't your home. It's easy for us to forget that. We can start living like this is our home, but he's wanting you to remember, this isn't your home. And if you remember, I'm not supposed to be comfortable here. I'm supposed to be uncomfortable here. To a degree, I'm kind of not supposed to like it here. I I mean, I like it here, but I don't like it here completely. There should be an unrest in all of us. And if there's this unrest, I think that that unrest that's in us will cause us to want to have a heart that pursues holiness. Because we know there's a far better place that we could go that is awaiting for us. There is a far better place. So we should, this is how I do it. The the way I try to train my mind to remember that I'm a sojourner in exile is to use rescue language. So whenever I was at a church a while back, there was some big problems going on and it was just tumultuous. I I wasn't the catalyst of of the tumult, but I was in the middle of it nonetheless. And so there was a, an obscure David Crowder song, it's like circa 2006, um, that I listened to literally on repeat for nine months in a row for the whole thing. It's song number 18 on a collision album, Rescue is Coming, because I listened to it that much, over and over and over. And this is how I train my mind to think like a sojourner, is I need rescue, I need rescue. Rescue's coming, I need rescue. I trained my heart to always have an unrest of saying, rescue me from this. Not just that one instance, but all of this life. And that's helped me train my mind to think, because I am constantly desiring rescue from where I am, I'm a sojourner, I'm an exile. This isn't my home, I'm just passing through here. One day I'll get to leave here and I'll, I shouldn't get too comfortable. I shouldn't like it here too much. C.S. Lewis kind of has this little quote where he says, for Christians, earth is the closest we'll ever get to hell. For non-Christians, earth is the closest they'll ever get to heaven. But for us, this is the closest I'll ever have to hell, but there's an entirely better place. And so I need to constantly train myself. Since there's a better place, I'm just a sojourner. I'm just passing through. It's infinitely better there than here. So why would I allow my heart and mind to just get so comfortable here. I know why it's easy. It's very easy. It's fun here, right? We, we can find all kinds of distractions here. But the way that you train your mind to live like a sojourner or an exile, and hence, I think, really pursue holiness, 
is to remind yourself that you're in constant need of rescue. That's how I do it. Because this is not my home. This is not my home. One day the new heavens and the earth, when we come back, we'll be at home here, but we won't be sinners and Christ will be with us. Praise God for that day. I can't wait. But right now, this is not my home. And so, you and I are supposed to live as sojourners, exiles. I mean, just if this is the easiest way to think about it. You've been sent to another country. You've lived there for, I don't know, three, six, seven months, three, six, seven years, whatever you want. There's always inside of you, like this little, like, I just want to go home. If I could pick what I want, my family's back there, my loved ones are back there, I want to go home. That's how we're supposed to feel about heaven. I know we've never been there, but we're supposed to want to be home. That's our home, not here. So Peter's framing this as, and I'm going to address you as exiles um, and me. Peter's framing this as, these are my thoughts on the way that you can have a life that pursues holiness. So he tells us in the text. But let's not, remi- let's not just kind of throw away the commands of verse 1 and 11, 12. We are still commanded to put away all malice. Malice isn't just, in this particular Greek word, isn't just intent towards evil. It's evil action as well. Um, deceit is, is lying. Hypocrisy is being someone that you're not. I'm a Christian, but I'd never act like it. Envy, desiring something else, or slander, saying s- sinful things about people, or uh, abs- verse 11, we're supposed to abstain from s- the sinful passions of the flesh. So we're, we're not supposed to strive after these things. And these are straight up commands. And I think we keep those by adhering to these three thoughts of Peter. Let me, let me, let me show them to you. Verse two, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. The key word, and if it's okay, like Jesus isn't upset if you write in your Bible, that key word is long. That's, that's the first one. So first thing, Peter's thoughts on holiness. Exiled one, if you don't like being called an exile, right sojourner, it's fine. Exiled one, long for the word. Now, <laughs> I'm commanding you, Jesus is, not to do an action, but to feel. But that's what he's telling us. We're being told to long. Like n- newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, uh, this doesn't mean that we're baby Christians. So don't, don't think of baby Christians eat milk, so I'm just a baby that needs milk. That's not, what, that's not the emphasis that Peter's trying to, trying to put you on. The emphasis is the longing. Like babies long for milk. If you've been around kids, we've got so many, but like uh, one thing I've noticed is whenever they're hungry when they're babies, they don't say, FYI, mom, dad, hungry over here. I'm gonna sit here patiently. You just, whenever you're ready, you can come get me. And I would love to eat now. That's, it would be great if they did that, but they don't do that. Whenever it's time to eat, the expression or the manner by which they let me know is and, and forever. It's just until I give them milk, the longing is a unrest of screaming until they get it. So um, I scared somebody, obviously. But here's what I want you to think is this. Listen, here's the thing. In the same way that we picture, and a baby doesn't consciously do this, there's something underlying where the baby says, I have to be fed right now. I have a longing to be fed right now. 
And Peter is literally telling you with the same holy unrest that a baby has for milk, that's the holy hunger that should manifest itself in your life for the word. And the same, think about the impatience. Think about the, the holy hunger, the hunger that a baby has for food when it's hungry. That's the same way you should long for the word. So whenever the Bible tells you to read the Bible and be in the word and all these kinds of things, every time you hear that, I want you to think about a baby screaming its head off because it needs to be fed. And that should be metaphorically how you look daily. I have a holy hunger, a holy unrest for the word right now that has to be fed. I have to get in the Bible. And I say... The first way that you're literally going to pursue holiness, the way that holiness is going to finally start taking root in your life and you're going to put away malice and envy and slander and you're going to not have passions of the flesh waging war against your soul is a daily, holy, unrest, longing for the word. So this isn't me saying, get in your Bible no matter what. Not so much pushing, and I don't think Peter's so much pushing about the action as much the desire. Christians should have a holy hunger for the word. And notice what what are the the, um, benefits. Like newborn infants, we need to long for the word, if you will, pure spiritual milk. And interestingly enough, that by it, you may grow up into salvation. See, salvation, yes, we say I get saved, and that's like I asked Jesus in my heart, I'm saved. But for the Bible, that's true, but for the Bible, salvation isn't just that ask Jesus in my heart moment, forgive, ask me for my sins. Salvation is a holistic thing. It's regeneration when God opens my eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. It's justification whenever I ask Christ in my heart. It's sanctification, the process of becoming more holy until I die. And glorification when I'm finally to be made like Christ. That's salvation. And so we have to have the word in order for this entire salvation to happen. We grow up into salvation. So the first thing is this. Long for the word. He's telling you to long for the Bible in the same way that a baby longs to be fed. Longs to be fed. This, this, this is a quote from Tony Morita. I, I love Tony Morita, um, his works and his books. And this is what he says. I read the Bible daily. I mean, this is highlighting exactly what I'm talking about, the longing. Not just the the duty-based action of reading, but the longing behind it. I read the Bible daily because Jesus Christ speaks to me from his word. Who's like him? And who am I? Reading the Bible is not a duty, but it's a privilege. This is exactly the mindset we're to have. This is what it means to long. So holiness in our lives, which we would all agree we're supposed to have, the first way is addressed through having a longing, lifelong longing, holy hunger for his word. And then Peter kind of, it feels like Peter gives you this kind of like uppercut with verse three, where you're like, wait a second, that was kind of a cheap shot, Peter. Man, I thought we were, we were boys. And then all of a sudden, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, he's talking to Christians, you should hunger for the word if you've ever even tasted it. Peter, man, why you got to say that? Listen, I don't want us to think that Peter's trying to give you the the cheap shot or making you feel guilty. I think that this is actually more encouragement and motivation. This is, 
when you taste it, it's so good. You've got to. As soon as you taste it and you're like, oh, this is so good, then that hunger will happen. That hunger will always happen. So like whenever you eat food and you think, oh, this is so great, and finally you eat something better that's that, you're like, eh, I don't want that anymore. That's terrible. I just want the good thing now because this is garbage compared to that. I always thought this was great until I tasted that. Now all I want's that. That's what he's saying. You're nibbling on garbage. If indeed, like, you should taste and see that the Lord is good in his word. And when you do, the longing that you're commanded to long actually begins. The Holy Spirit does it. So the first thing is, and I think that's an encouragement to motivate you, long, long for the word. Holiness happens when we start longing for the word. So let's, let's ask the question. It's a, it's a question you have to kind of think about. You can't just answer in, you know, five seconds. Think about over the course of this week. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good in his word? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good in his word? It's not a, uh, checklist done. What's next, God? When I go to the word, I don't want to just read words to read words because I'm supposed to read words. You still do it. But I want to see in the pages the beauty of Christ. Every page, as I read every day, my goal is not just to learn more theology. My goal primarily is to see Christ as the most precious reality in all the world. That's, that's what we go for. So that helps us grow in our holiness. The first one, exiled one or sojourner, long for the word. The next one, Peter, second thought for Peter is in, in verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. Now, he's writing to Christians and he's telling Christians, you should have come to him, but you should also, as you keep coming to him, you always keep coming to him. Christians, is, we don't come to Christ and get that squared away and then go. We, we continually come to him. And as we saw in verse one through three, the coming to him involves the word. So we come to him continually by the word and prayer and we never ever stop coming to him. Now he uses this phrase, as a living stone. That's not, that's not common in the Bible where, where Christ has talked about a living stone. So there's a, there's a metaphor in verses four through eight that he's going for. And in the end, you're gonna see just how unbelievably um, gospel-centered it is. You come to Christ, a living stone, and he's gonna just start describing Christ here. Christ is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, Christ is chosen and precious. So in verse four, we see this description of Jesus. Rejected by men, chosen and precious. He's a living stone, chosen and precious. Now he's going to describe us like to be living stones like him. In verse five, he says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So we are like living stones. So since we're like Christ, like living stones, we're also chosen and precious. That's great news. That's in other places too. It's not me just importing that. That's in Colossians three as well. God has repeatedly told us that we're chosen and precious to him. So like Christ is chosen and precious and so are we. And then here's the metaphor in verse five. You yourselves, this is the part I would underline, like living stones, like Jesus, are being built up as a spiritual house. 
So Christ is the living stone. We're going to see in the, in the building metaphor where he, he places himself. But what's, tell, what's being told to us is, we who are Christ followers, here it is. The are being built up as a spiritual house. That's the key. I mean, that's the huge key right there. We are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, that's his metaphor, but that's what he's telling you. So here's the second thing. And this, this, remember, this is about pursuing holiness. So encouragement beyond all encouragements is to hear this. God wants you to be holy, and then he's going to give you this huge encouragement by telling you, you're already growing into that. Here it is. Second one, exiled one, sojourner, however you want to call it. You are becoming a spiritual house. You may not feel like it. You may not, over the last month, if you're a believer, say, well, that's the truth. But what he's saying here is this. If you are truly in Christ, without question, it's happening. You are being told by God to be holy, and you are actually growing. In your, your spiritual house, it might just be a little shack right now. It might be an outdoor house, or it could be a big mansion, three, three-story house or whatever. But nonetheless, you're growing up into it. That thing is growing. It is a spiritual house. Now, spiritual, um, Wayne Grudem, when he says spiritual, he says, don't think of the term spiritual meaning like immaterial, like it can't be seen or touched. That's not what it means. It's a separate meaning when he says spiritual. It means more influenced and dominated by the Holy Spirit. So you are growing up into a spiritual house. Every Christian this is what's true of you. You are growing up into being and becoming a person that is always continually influenced and dominated by the Holy Spirit. I need to hear that all the time because I feel like I fail all the time. But what's true is the Lord has said, you are growing up into a spiritual house because, not because of you, but because you have this little cornerstone right here and his name's Jesus and he's seeing to it. He's the key. He's the root. He's the foundation. And because that's the case, this house is gonna keep growing. He tells us that as, as, he, as we look at it. So we see Christ as the living stone who's chosen and precious. And he says, we are like living stones being built into this spiritual house, this metaphorical spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. I'm going to come back to that because he tells us that we're a priest in verse 9. Uh, I'm going to put that in verse 9. And it says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, when you hear spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, they offered sacrifices that were acceptable to God. And those sacrifices usually involved killing animals. Now, unless you're an outdoorsman, this sounds like, eh, it's not what I want. What does that mean? Am I supposed to do that? No, you're not. So in the New Testament, praise God, we're not slicing animals' throats. Instead, the sacrifices that we offer that are pleasing to God are the sacrifice of worship, the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of adoration. Way cleaner, way, way cleaner. But that's the, that's the sacrifices we offer. So as believers in Christ, inside of our spiritual house, who we are, this house that God is building up in Christ as the cornerstone is to be um, described as a person that offers up sacrifices and praise. My life continually should be me offering up worship and adoration and praise verbally, 
on Sunday morning and as I live, the way I live is a, a, a lifestyle of worship to him. And that's, that's growing in holiness. Now, I want you to see the, the gospeliciousness of this house because this is where it's gonna get good and how Christ is the, the cornerstone. I want you, this is what I'm going for here. Now that we see this house needs to be built, you're automatically like, you're putting your hammer on and you're screwdriving. You're like, I gotta build the house. It's all up to me. It's up to me. I gotta go to Lowe's and get the wood. I don't want you to think that. Like Jesus, the reason the house is gonna grow is because of this cornerstone and because of him, because of the good news of the gospel, he's going to make it happen and it's influenced and dominated by the Holy Spirit. You're doing it. It's happening in you. I'm not diminishing your part, but you have to realize that it's because of the cornerstone and not your not just your um, external efforts. Notice this. For it stands in Scripture. He's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying um, or establishing in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Now, he just got through telling us that the living stone is chosen and precious in verse 4. So he's talking about Jesus and We know that because after you see that, whoever believes in him. So the the stone is a him, and the Bible never talks about believing in him unless it's talking about Jesus. And so it's telling us there's this cornerstone in your spiritual house, and that cornerstone is absolutely crucial for your house to be built. In other words, belief in the good news of the gospel that you say, Christ, here's all my sins, I get all your righteousness, and forever I am going to live in a manner that shows that since you've declared me holy, I can be holy and I can achieve this house growing because of Christ. It's only because of the gospel that I've been declared holy and I can continually live to be holy because of Christ. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Your house of holiness growing in it is as fast or as slow as it's taking because of Jesus, the cornerstone, and your intrinsic growing belief in him, you'll not be put to shame. Jesus is the absolute reason why. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe him at verse seven, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that's, for those that don't believe, that cornerstone now is the stumbling block. It's the thing that causes them not to believe. Because it, it, unless you have this cornerstone as your house, your house will never ever be a house. Unless Jesus is the beginning, then that's the stumbling. Like you can't build your house into this spiritual house without Christ. There is no building the house without the cornerstone of Christ. But for those that believe, he is the cornerstone. We bank everything on this house being built up because of him, not because of our external efforts. So, so holiness, putting away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, killing the passions of the flesh. Yes, I mean, we, we do take part in that. That's a command and the Lord's telling me, don't do those things. And so when the temptation comes, I'm not, I don't wanna do those things. But internally in my house, What's going on is the cornerstone Jesus sends his Holy Spirit into my mind and my heart. And my mind says no, and my heart says, Christ is more precious. And so when I choose not to, it's because of Christ, the cornerstone, drawing my heart away and saying, I'm a sojourner. I don't, that's, that's terrible. That's more precious. And so I don't want that because Christ is 
showing me that I need rescue in this moment and always. That's what I want. Christ is more precious than this. And so, I mean, literally all of that is, is the inward battle at every sinful temptation that comes to you. That whole battle is happening. And when you have victory, you chose it, but Jesus is the reason why you chose it. And he gets all the glory, not us. So I think it's huge for us to realize, then I'm becoming a spiritual house. That means the sin that you think, whatever it is, that you can't beat, you can't say no to, you can't get over, you can. You absolutely can. God lives in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. You're being influenced and dominated by the Holy Spirit, not that sin. So so holiness, mostly, I think, the victory for holiness mostly takes place right here. Not with these. Here. And the victory happens because of Christ. So, you'll notice that these these thoughts of Peter are not action-oriented. The first one, have a heart that longs for the Bible. Like a baby screams its head off till it gets fed. That's what I should look like until I get the Bible every morning. I'm supposed to long for it in that manner. Secondly, teach and train my mind that the Holy Spirit absolutely has complete influence and domination of me. And I'm growing into a house that the cornerstone is Jesus. Now, I'm officially jumping off into a rabbit trail for five, three minutes because of the verses here. We're gonna come back to number three, third thought in just a second. But even this week, as Jordan and I were reading this text, we both were like, I don't like the way eight finishes. And so I wanna, I wanna address the end of verse eight for us all and just give you, um, give you a deep desire still to do evangelism and never make an excuse a while. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't do evangelism then. Look at this. So the people that don't say, yes, I want Jesus to be my savior, they, they trip over the cornerstone and say, I don't want my house to be made of that. They stumble and they disobey the word, which over the last two weeks we've, we've already recognized that disobey the word means disobey the gospel, means don't believe the gospel. They don't trust in Christ. They, they don't want Jesus as their savior. They disobey the word as they were destined to do. And it just makes you feel icky inside, like, Never have a chance. Never have a chance. Now, I'm going to quote Wayne Grudem here. Wayne Grudem. This is, if you don't know anything about theology, Wayne Grudem's like Captain Reformed Theology. He wrote the whole systematic theology book. It's like 1,500 pages of Reformed theology who agrees with predestination. This is Wayne Grudem talking about this text. This is why I love Grudem, because he's so fair. So this is what he says. And I'm hoping that for all of us then, we don't say, they're never, I've shared the gospel with this guy so many times, like three, and they just must be destined for, you know, hell because like, like it says in 1 Peter 2.8. So I'm just going to move on to the next one. I'm trying to erase that with Grudem. This text leaves open the possibility of repentance and saving faith in Christ for the unbelievers it talks about. It leaves open the possibility for repentance and saving faith for the actual people it's talking about. 
This is what he says. The three key verbs are all in the present tense and can literally be rendered, rendered this way. In the Greek, they can be rendered. But for those who are presently not believing, those who are presently stumbling, those who are just presently disobeying the word unto which they were destined. Meaning, this does not, of course, imply that they will ever come to saving faith, but it does not stop short of saying that their eternal condemnation is absolutely already ordained. Rather, it affirms that their present rebellion and disobedience is is ordained by God, not their future. So, it does not indicate whether they'll come to faith um, throughout their life or not. It does not indicate it. However, Peter does say, even in the next couple verses in and over, that as he describes people who are unbelievers, that they will come to faith. And he uses the exact same language. Notice where, in verse 8 it says, they stumble because they disobey the word. Look at, look at 3.1 with me. We've already talked about it. This is wives living with unbelieving husbands, and it describes them as literally disobeying the word. For what purpose do they act like Christians with husbands that disobey the words? So they can be won over. Likewise, husbands be subject to, likewise wives be subject to your own husbands so that even some who do not obey the word, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. They disobey the word. Here it is. They disobey the word that they may be won. So even in 1 Peter 3, 1, those that disobey the word presently still in the future have the possibility of being one. It says it over in, in, in verse 12, in the same text we're in, chapter 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against evildoers, they may see your good deeds and then what? Glorify God. So even in that text, it's implicit for sure that there are people that don't trust Christ and then by you living out like as a Christ follower and calling them to that, that they can. So in here, as you read, they stumble because they're destined. I think that we can still say, I can confidently say to you, don't ever just say, well, I'm not gonna share the gospel with this guy. They're probably destined for how I'm just gonna move to the next. You have no idea. If someone's an unbeliever, you have no idea if they'll ever come to Christ. So don't stop. I've seen it in my own life. Years and years and years and years and years later, they do. So don't let Second Peter, I'm sorry, First Peter 2.8 kind of be your, your excuse to not tell people about Jesus. I think that would be a poor uh, exegetical uh, decision. Anyway, off the rabbit trail, back onto here. Tell everybody about Jesus. Here we go. So we know thus far that holiness is being told, told to us that we're supposed to pursue. One through longing for the word. The other with this amazing encouragement that we're, we're growing into this spiritual house. Here's a third one. And this is, this is crazy. In verses 9 and 10, um, he looks right at us and he says... You need to know who you are. The reason why you don't live holy is because you don't know who you are. Listen to these things about who you are. And when you know these things, don't just cognitively say, oh, those are me. Instead, own it. This is my identity. I'm not just going to hear it, but I'm going to move over and I'm going to own it. I'm a Gamecock fan. I don't just know that, but even in the bad times when we keep losing, I'm owning it right here in front of everybody. I'll still support them, even though we stink. Bad example, but that's, that's kind of what Peter's trying to say here. Don't just know who your identity is. Own your identity. And he tells you six 
specific things about your identity, about who you are. They're right there in the text we can go. So here's the third one. Exiled one, sojourner. The way that you're going to pursue holiness in this life where you're just passing through and it's not your home is not just knowing your identity, but owning it. If this is me, I'm going to own it. I'm going to be this then. Six things in this verses nine and 10 about who you are, your, your identity. This is the essence of who you are now. This is the substance now of what it means to be a Christ follower. This isn't tangential nothings. This is my whole nature has changed. The old creation has passed. I'm a new creation now. This is my new essence, my new substance, my new creation of who I am. I'm going to own that identity. Here they are. I mean, you can, you can read them with me, but I'm going to still explain them. <laughs> We're a chosen race. You're no longer a part of a race. As a believer, while we live here, you know, you're white, you're black, or whatever. But God in here is saying, he's obliterating the idea of race by color. He's obliterating that and saying, now you're a new race, and it's called chosen. Your new race is called chosen. So when you go to the doctor's office, and you're looking at, looking at race, you don't have my thing here anymore. There's a, there should be a new box. It should say chosen. That's my race now. You don't have it on there. Add that, because I'm not white anymore. I'm chosen. That's my new race. He's wanting to obliterate categories of trying to say it's color, but instead he's collecting all of the precious trophies of colors together and saying, new race. And you all look different, and the new race is called chosen. You're a chosen race. That's who you are. I mean, that's just unbelievably beautiful that the Lord collects all of us in all of our different looks and says, you're one people now. You're chosen. You're my chosen race. That's the first thing. Imagine with me what that would mean in regard to holiness when you see everyone who's your brother and sister, no matter what they look like, as part of the same race as you in the South. I think that that would radically change the way we think. Radically. But that's who we are. We're one race now. Next one. Oh, this one's, this one's so good. I'm going to say that about every one of them, but I really, really think this one's so good. You're a royal priesthood. So in the Old Testament, there was only one person in the Old Testament that could go into the presence of God. It was the priest. The priest would go into the presence of God, make all the sacrifices, and do that only once a year. And only the priest could do it. Now, in the New Testament, Christ is called the priest, but he's also not just the priest that makes a sacrifice. He's literally the sacrifice. He, the priest that makes a sacrifice of himself. But here, Peter is taking it a step further. He's saying, not only is Jesus the priest who makes the sacrifice, you're now a part of the priesthood. And just like in the Old Testament, where only the priest was allowed into the presence of God, you are now allowed into the presence of God. So when we hear that you're a royal priesthood, you're part of the royal priesthood, every one of you that are in Christ means that you are now continually, always ministering in the presence of God. You are continually in the presence of God. You're never not in the presence of God. With the same, I mean, think about, I know we all read the whole, maybe you don't, but in the Old Testament, you have like 
the one little section, then the next little section, the Holy of Holies, and then and they went in there, and just this one guy, and he was the priest, could only go one year, and you just seem like, this guy's so special. He must just hold it over all their heads. Look at me, you know, once a year, you never get to see what this looks like in here. And in the New Testament, it's saying, every one of you are chosen and precious enough to enter into the Holy of Holies. And what are they doing there? They didn't just chill and play ping pong. They were offering sacrifices. The point that, of being in the presence, continually being in the presence of God, is worship. So here, your identity is always in the presence of God, always able to offer worship to God. That's your essence. That's who you are now. Well, when I think of that, and I think of sinning, those things never, ever mix. Always able to be in the presence of God. Always able to offer worship. So, we are a royal priesthood. The next one, you see it right there. You're also a holy nation. Holy, sanctified, set apart. This is just saying you, you exist for God now. You've been set apart for holiness. We've, we were told uh, in verse 16 of chapter 1, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Because God is holy, you're going to be holy. And the standard by which holiness is, is measured by God. God's holiness is now who you are. And he says here that you are a holy nation. When you act in a way that's not holy, you act out of character. Whenever you act with sin, you are contradicting the essence of who you are now. So don't do that because your identity now is holy. It's not sinner. It's holy. On my worst days, I need to hear this. On my best days, so I'm not too prideful. But on my worst days, I need to hear this. The Lord still sees me as holy and calls me holy. The doctrine of uh, expiation, the cleansing of all my sin is something I need to remind myself of. I am absolutely clean. I'm holy. The next one is this. A people for his own possession. So your identity, the essence is, you no longer belong to yourself. You actually belong to God. You're his possession now. So I want to make sure we understand this. When we say God owns everything, he owns the trees and the, and the oceans and the mountains, he does, but he doesn't own the trees and the mountains and the oceans in the same way that he owns you and I. It's, it's better because he doesn't have a personal relationship with the trees and the oceans and the mountains. But with us, he does. We're created in the image of God. And so God owning us is more than just saying he owns the oceans. He owns the stars. He owns those things. Instead, being God's possession means that we walk with him. He reveals himself to us. And we have personal relationship with him forever. Forever. God's possession forever. It's not bad. Being owned by somebody sounds bad. And and here, this isn't our home. Being owned by God, not ever bad. Not ever bad. We're we're God's possession. Next one. I'm going to to skip the rest of verse 9 and go to verse 10. You can see um, that after his possession that you may proclaim the excellencies. I'm going to go down to verse 10. 
and do that one and then come back up to verse 9. Once you were not uh, a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the next one is that we're mercy recipients. Now, last week I referenced Hosea when I was talking about um, pursuing holiness. And I said Hosea was told by God to pursue Gomer, one who would never love him, and pursue her anyway, though she would sin against him. And finally he went and ransomed her. And because he bought her back, she came home. And this particular verse, verse 10, is referencing Hosea. In Hosea... The two children that they had were called, not my people, not received mercy. And when she finally came home, their names were changed from, from not my people to you are my people, from not received mercy to you have received mercy. And so this is all tying back to because of the ransom, you are now mercy recipients. This is the best way to say it, say it I think. The essence of being a mercy recipient is this. God was not obligated to save any of us. It wasn't like Fudd's pretty awesome. I mean, of all the people, they're, they're okay, but kind of obligated to say Fudd. He's pretty, he's pretty much a stud. Not at all. Like, there's nothing great about me at all. In sheer mercy did he come. I was a re- rebel enemy of him, and in sheer mercy did he save me. And that's what's the case of us all. Mercy, mercy caused him to do that to a rebel You and I are the exact same in that regard as believers. We're mercy recipients. We were enemies of his, active enemies against him. And in mercy, he came and said, I'm gonna gonna forgive you of your sin, call you over here. So I'm gonna buy you actually with my own son. And now you've gone from, as it says, not being my people and not receiving mercy to being my people, being my possession, and being my people. We're mercy recipients. Now, how does that play out in the life of holiness? For those that have received mercy, we can give much mercy to others. We can be holy by being loving and kind to other people, just as we were told last week that born-again people are the kind of people that love one another from a pure heart. That's in verse, the end of verse 22 in chapter 1. Here's the last one. The essence of who we are. Now, those first five are all dealing with kind of our inward, intrinsic thoughts and mind and who we are in our essence. But this last one is who we are in our essence, but it deals also with kind of externally how it's expressed. You may not think this is the case, but you are, as it says, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out. That proclaim is not like I wanted it so bad to be the proclaim that's like most proclaims in the New Testament where it also means like preach. You're all the preachers. I was like, they're all preachers. That means you're all evangelists. That's not what it means. That's not what I mean. I wanted it to be bad. So I could tell us all to be evangelists, which I've already done. <laughs> this is actually your declarers. This is, this is worshipers. This, R.C. Sproul says it this way. As, as God's declarers or God's praisers, R.C. says, we have, Sproul says, we have received our citizenship for the purpose of proclaiming God's praise. So, in your essence, you are actually now an external, verbal declarer of the praises of God. That's who you are now. God has said, as my son, as my daughter, you are to now go proclaim the excellencies of the one that chose you.
Proclaim the excellence, excellencies of being in his presence. Proclaim the excellencies of being declared holy. Proclaim the excellencies of being his possession. Proclaim the excellencies of being a mercy recipient. Verbally, out loud, sing to him and tell people just about how awesome he is. That I'm kind of a quiet person, but I don't do that. Doesn't matter. New substance, new identity. You are now a declarer. That's who you are. You talk about him all the time. Not obnoxiously. It's not like an obnoxious proclaimer. But we are, in our essence now, proclaimers of his excellencies. That's who we are intrinsically. Now, taking a step back, and we're looking at this, and this is six amazing things about our identity, that we are chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, God's possession, mercy recipients, and out loud praisers of him, declarers of his grace. One question. What would it look like then for you tonight, tomorrow, this week, this month, this year, your life, to know, not just cognitively, but own this identity? How radically would it change your pursuit of holiness? Now, all three of these things are all in the mind, longing for the word, being encouraged and believing that I'm now dominated by the spirit and owning this identity, this new essence. These are all things I have to help my mind think. So we don't want to make the mistake of saying, holiness is all in the mind. I mean, certainly verses one and 11 on the, on the bookends give us direct commands on what not to do. Don't do those things. But also, take up the deep work. Don't, don't let your mind drift off into banality or useless, pointless things all the time. Use your mind to concentrate on teaching yourself these things. Let your mind long and think for hours about longing for the word and being in the word and train your heart to say I need to be rescued this heart this place is not my home I truly am a sojourner and so the the metaphor of being up into a spiritual house really does give me victory when temptation comes because of the cornerstone Christ but we, we won't do this unless we allow our hearts and minds to take time and think through these things I think verse 9 and 10 those six things, you need to write them down on a sticky and put them on your bathroom mirror or your rear view mirror. Like you can, or your, make it your screensaver on your phone or your wallpaper, whatever that thing's called. Like every time you turn on your phone, something you look at a lot, probably your phone, hopefully your children, but like, <laughs> like put it on their foreheads. I don't know, like these six things so I can see constantly, this is my essence. I, I need to not forget that. This is my essence. We are such forgetful creatures. Remind yourself constantly of who you are so that you can pursue this holiness. But that last one, we're going to put into like direct application right now. Out loud proclaimers. Right now we're going to do it. So let's all stand. I'm going to pray. And Jordan is going to lead us in a time of out loud declaration praise to Jesus. It just stretches out so you can, you can get after it. But let's pray. And then we're going to out loud declare his praises. God, thank you for this time where we can come here and worship you. 
Remind us constantly that we're sojourners. We are exiles. This is not our home. And we have a direct command for you to pursue holiness. And because of Christ, the cornerstone, the redeemed of Jesus, we can absolutely, with victory, pursue holiness. Be with us now as we praise you. Pray this all in Jesus' name.